Welcome to the 45th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Tom and Irene Franson are well-known within the sustainable and organic agriculture community. Their innovative pork and crop production systems have made their Northeast Iowa operation a popular venue for field days and workshops over the years. In addition, cutting-edge on-farm research has been conducted on the Franson operation to gauge what impact their techniques are having on the agronomic and environmental health of the land. Numerous articles have been written about the Franson farm, and Tom is a popular speaker at sustainable agriculture events. But their farm wasn't always the way it is now. When they got started in 1974, the crop and livestock operation was pretty typical. It used chemicals and raised hogs in a confinement-type system. But concerns about economic and environmental sustainability, as well as family quality of life issues, prompted the Francins to reinvent the operation. I've visited the farm several times over the years and had numerous conversations with the Francins. And what impresses me is this is one family that is not afraid of change. They have embraced it, even when it's made life not so easy for them. Not every innovative technique the Francins have adopted over the years has been a roaring success, but their willingness to roll with the punches and try new strategies has allowed the family to create a farm that is quite resilient economically and environmentally. Tom recently spoke about change and his farm's evolution over the years during a keynote talk at the Minnesota Organic Conference. As you will hear, he is convinced that the ability to embrace change and take a holistic approach to farming is what has made it possible for this family to make a living on less than 400 acres. How many remember the song back in the 1960s called Ball of Confusion? And a line from the song goes, evolution, revolution, shooting rockets to the moon. Politicians say more taxes will solve anything. And the band plays on. So today I want to talk to you about change, why people change, how we can be agents of change, but let's talk about this, you know, um, uh, talk about a ball of confusion. Now, if you want to have change and change in the same direction all the time, let's just turn to the left a little bit all the time, or maybe I'm politically speaking here, turn to the right a little bit all the time, and just keep on doing the same thing. You know what that's a recipe for? That's for going in circles. Then all you got to do is to increase the speed, and so you turn left a little bit quicker all the time, and you end up where you started out at, and you keep on doing it fast, and you end up very confused because you're where you start out at. So change is what? Change is not created by comfortable people. If you are a comfortable person in this room with the world around you, you are not going to be an agent of change. Who creates change? Uncomfortable people create change. Now, I stole this slide from the computer people. This is a graph of change over time. Now, events go on in this world over here, and we're kind of stumbling along over here right in this corner by, by uh, invention. So let's use, for example, global positioning technology. And by no means am I opposed or this or any kind. This is just a technology. But somebody invents an ability to park a satellite in outer space and knows that they can measure accurately back to the Earth. It came from military use, obviously. But then the trigger event 
is when somebody says, you know, I can use that technology and I can use it to apply it to an agricultural equipment and I can measure where this equipment is and how far it's moved and then I can rate the uh, rate it's harvesting something and I can get yield information. And what goes on when you have a trigger event after an invention is commercialization of change. Now what this creates is an opportunity for people to get involved in this and make change happen quickly, which is what salespeople want to have. I want to change your life quickly by my technology or by my anything else that I have. So what people end up doing is they hype up the adaptation of some new type of an invention. And the danger here is that it can give you, as we go up the chart over here, unrealistic expectations. So you bought into a technology that allows you to fantastically accurate measure something, but what you measured is what the weather did to your crop genetics last year. That could be totally accurate, but the difficulty is that the more you put into what you learned from the past may not teach you a heck of a lot about the next year. So you uh, get involved in this situation of you're expecting very rapid change in a very short amount of time. You hype the daylights out of this thing, and so you have this very unrealistic expectation, and then you find out that I got misapplications. The next year was a completely different set of events than I thought it was going to be. This technology did not return me what they told me it was going to do, which, you know, made it into bad technology, but you set yourself up for unrealistic expectations of change in a short amount of time. The misapplication part of this is no fun at all, which will leave you in time to the trough of despair. Man, I borrowed too much money. Oh, we aren't going to survive. Oh, this is going to be terrible. But the trough of despair is a tough spot. If you survive that, and believe me, organic meats will fit in this. There's all kinds of uh, innovations and changes over time. In fact, organic meat's a perfect example of this. In time, you get to the slope of enlightenment that you see that we'll have change over time and it won't be quite what it was hyped up to be. Now, I'm showing this to a group a while back, and a guy pops up and said, Man, he says, that's marriage. I think he's right. Boy meets girl. Huh? Now, what would the trigger event be? Anybody got any ideas on unrealistic expectations? I bet a few of us had some, huh? Now let's get over to the misapplication side of two human beings learning how to get together. Have any of those misapplications? I've married 31 years, I can get a whole bunch. The trough of despair, definitely in human relationships, no fun spot to be in, but we've all been in some of those. Only after a while, there's a slope of enlightenment. Now, the guy went on to say, you know, he says that slope of enlightenment over there, he says, with human beings is almost perfectly flat. See, we don't change real quick. In fact, the old adage is that, you know, the path to progress, you know what's paved with? Two types of paving stones, retirements and funerals. Because young people are the ones that cause change. Because the people who may have been resisting change kind of get in the road after a while. So that's how we go about it. But nonetheless, this is... A picture of our farm. There are only three couples been in this farm since settlement. I'm currently writing the history of this farm. My wife and I are there since, uh, uh, well, I was born there in 52. My wife and I have been there since 76. My parents are there since 35, and we know a lot about the couple that moved here in 1887. And so I'm writing that history, but I'm actually writing the history of the land that goes back to the origin of the surface. And so to do this, I want to share with you some things that changed my life. Um, I knew a few things about our geological past and our natural history, but I didn't know a heck of a lot. And it took me about 18 months to read fairly in-depth of where physically our land came from. 
And uh, you know, if I talk about this, the coffee shop in Ala Vista on Sunday mornings, you know what they do? They, they throw friends out in the street and they make damn sure the door is locked. I mean, they don't want to talk about geology up to I can't figure that out. You know, I just don't understand these people. But nonetheless, um, what's happening is this. I now understand where we came from physically, earthwise, and the years and the amount of time it took. And I'm 50, I'll be 56 this March, and I drive through the same land and the same places I've driven for 50 some years, only have a brand new love for the world around me. I've fallen in love with the land I've looked at for my entire life. You know, I leave Clear Lake, Iowa, 70 miles west of us, where the Des Moines Lobe carved our land out 10,000, 20,000 years ago, a new surface. Then I drive through the Iowa surface where we're at, that's a quarter of a million years old. And then we head over to Decor, only 30 miles away, a 350 million year old surface, and only traveled 100 miles. Man, what change we have. Fantastic change. And change over time. But I gotta tell you, a change agent this morning, that's a fantastic discovery that has just been announced. And I promise you that uh, the whole, the, our, our scientific community is, uh, is just about to explode over this one. And this scientific discovery, I'm sorry to tell you, Meg and Mary Hanks did not come out of Minnesota. It did not come out of Iowa. Nobody out of Wisconsin didn't score any points here either. No. This is a fantastic discovery. You will have it in the papers. It will be all over it on the internet. In fact, I think I saw it this morning out there. It's, it's brand new. came from the Ohio State University. came from their ag college. After 30 years of the most thorough investigation any scientific institution has ever undertaken, the Dairy Sciences and Forages Department of the Ohio State University have come to the undisputed conclusion that cows prefer to walk around and grass prefers to stand still. Now that's after 30 years of making the cow's behavior change by making her stand still. Well, we find new ways to haul the grass around and change its where it's existing. You see, we're trying to input what we think the world should be when in reality nature says, you got to go in all the wrong direction. And so that really truly is an agent and a powerful agent to change. Let's take a look at our farm. You know, I backed up here, a picture of a farm shot in the 1950s there. I was probably uh, in uh, grade school. A picture of our farm here shot in the uh, 19, uh, probably 1990s. Uh, we have miles of shelter belts on the farm. Uh, the farm has had a lot of changes over time. But what has caused and what has, how have we been able to make these changes? I can tell you that it's fun to sit uh, to people at the Land Stewardship Project here because as an Iowa farm family, I can tell you that my wife and I came to Minnesota and we took a program that changed our life and changed our farm for the better. And you, uh, by welcoming an individual who was not from Minnesota, who brought a brand new idea along called holistic management, gave us a management change tool that improved our lives forever. And I will tell you this morning that I do not know of anything more powerful than the basic principles behind holistic management. And what it says is that you cannot make good decisions without having an understanding of what you want out of life that is orientated in your personal values. What's it going to take to sustain what you want out of life long term and the resource it's going to take to make that happen. That's the fundamentals of this. So we took this course that the Land Stewardship Project here offered that said that the quality of life for all members integrated with their goals, values, economics, and ecology is what we have to have. Now, in 1974, that didn't exist. We didn't know anything about it at all. 
1987, this was some thinking going on, but didn't really understand how to make this happen. By 97, holistic management was in its early understanding as we uh, struggled. And it is not easy to determine what you want out of life, especially if other people are involved. But there's tremendous value to it. You know, if I, give, I can give you the recipe this morning for failure. Guaranteed. Here's a specific way to fail. If any of you are interested in pork and you want to come to the pork session, we're going to talk about the snout. I'll give you a guaranteed recipe to fail. Come to session, listen to a guy in Iowa who's got 34 years of experience, pick up some ideas, something you may, may or not think we're going to work, but you've got some ideas here, take it home and apply it. You heard an expert tell you what to do, he's 30 miles away from home, you know, qualifies me as one of those people. You can make any progress at all. Well, you might make some progress. I can almost call it a shot in the dark. You know why I know that? I don't have a clue what you want out of life. Not a clue. Nor is it my business. I will tell you that if you can't sit down and discuss what you want out of life and integrate your values with your goals and then determine what's going to take to make that happen and then to list the resources it takes to make that sustain itself long term, you can't make any progress at all because you're trying to measure something without knowing the starting point. This is the value of holistic management. So let's go back to this about the snout course we'll have at 10 o'clock this morning. You have had this discussion about what you want out of life. You got an idea what's going to take for sustain this thing long term. It's integrated with your personal values. You and I am then, I have been freed. I can come and I can share ideas with you. And you don't have to be offended or overly enthused or anything. It doesn't make any difference. You can listen, we can share information, and then you know what you do? You go back and you apply that idea or that practice against what you want out of life and see if it conflicts with what you want out of life or if it integrates with it. It's freeing. It becomes fun. We've done this now for years in our farm, and our farm continues to change. But I don't fear the change. You know, some things I can't help but see the changes. In some stuff, we do have absolutely made enormous changes. But what we go back on is, do these changes conflict with what we want out of life, or are they integrated with our personal values? Once you have that stake set in the ground, you can start to make progress. So it's existed in 97. By 2007, we feel that the value of holistic management in place. And holistic management, go with those terms, bother you too much. It just means that the world is an integration. So that you can't... Uh, separate what you want and what your personal values are from where you're, going to, where you're making a living. You know, for instance, uh, I used to farm with chemicals. And you know I'm an organic farmer, by the way? I'm an organic farmer because the organic community welcomed me as a chemical farmer to come talk to you about pigs. And you know what I found out about you? You're a fun bunch of people to be with. You're social. This is fun. I like to yak anyway. Your food's great. I mean, life's better here. Ten years later, I'm an organic farmer. Yeah, I can have a great time. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's part of what we are. But it doesn't conflict with what we want. To think I would go back and, and use a product that would expose me to personal danger, that conflicts with what I want out of life completely. No, it's not going to happen. Because it's not only a violation of the National Organic Program, it's a violation of Tom and Irene Franzen's quality of life. So those are, that is a, a measurement and a benchmark. The future, keep it on track. We have a motto for the farm. We think we shall see the bounty of the Lord in the land of the living. Bounty of the Lord really means we think we'll see a prosperous life. I can tell you if things are going well, the farm is doing well. Um, uh, you know, we have our ups and downs years, but in general things are going very well. 
I'll tell you that it's a faith-based, and I'll tell you one of the reasons everybody's got a reason to believe in God. I believe in God because water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit and expands as it thaws. That's one of the most fantastic things if you think about it, you can imagine. Do you know our world would not be, we wouldn't be where we are at all if it wasn't for the fact that water turns solid at 32 degrees Fahrenheit? That's why we have the soil surface we have. And you know, it expands when it thaws. You know what that does? That gets into rocks and it breaks them apart. And that develops our soils. You can say that's geology. You can say it's theology. And I'm not a geologist, but it means but I know that trained geologists have to have some course in theology. Pretty fantastic, I think. What's the land of the living? The land of the living is biological diversity. I'm totally convinced of that. Of all the things that I know in the practices of holistic management, they say the thing you absolutely have to have is biological diversity. It is the key. It is the tool that makes things happen. Land ownership. We uh, bought some land from my parents in, in uh, 2000. Uh, no, excuse me, in uh, 1974. We rented to start with. And then we bought land from my dad in 78. Obviously a good time to buy land. And then we rented some additional land to expand the acres of the farm as a neighbor's farm retired. And then we bought some additional land uh, in, in 95 and built the base of the farm up. And then we bought the uh, last remaining track of that. And what this really did with the farm is it, it, it made the farm one that can be grazed with a beef cow herd uh, in a practical sense because the original acres were kind of scattered even though they were in the same section. But by the time the additional purchases and the renting uh, was done, then the land was an integrated mass is what it amounts to. And the future, we do face the problem of how will we ever transfer the ownership of the farm. And I think it's going to have to have a land trust. And so the conservation trust thing to us is, is a very important discussion. Farm profitability and stability. So what's the history there? Okay, 1974 was not a good year to start farming. I promise you, lost money that year. Wasn't the fact I was uh, renting dad's farm and I had my parents there. I, I don't think I ever would have survived the year. It certainly wasn't very darn good, I'll tell you that much. By, nine, by 87, we were becoming more stable, yet going through the turmoil of the 80s certainly was not a very easy time by any means. By 97, we were well into the organic transitional years, and I tell people those are difficult years, and our income tax records would prove it as such. The organic transitional years is a good example of how you have to have a long-term vision and know where you're going to go and be willing to endure hardships for the time being. You know, for instance, I get asked this question all the time. We have organic uh, uh, market hogs, throw to finish, and we have organic market cattle with the beef cow herd. And people say, you can't afford to feed high-priced organic grain. Now, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, how can we afford to justify feeding high-priced organic grains? Well, how would I make that decision if we didn't have our personal goals. What does the farm want long term? It wants a profitable, diversified farm with a stable resource base and a stable income. Well, we have a stable market with a stable pay price, and the farm is doing very well. And I go, well, feeding the grains up that we have just makes sense. It's what we always were doing. It's part of the ecology of the farm, and it's part of our long-term sustainability, and I'm paying income taxes the first of March every year, it seems like. So I think things are on track real well. So while this is a big problem for other people, I think it is a problem for people that have not had the discussion about what they want out of life and what their values are. And I want to go on and make this comment that is not amongst the organic sector of niche marketing. There are niche markets in pork today that are being threatened by the farmers who raise livestock for them who are all wanting to quit raising hogs. 
Well, if the what a tragedy it would be if niche pork would be hurt and or destroyed because the farmers raising hogsworm decide to opt out on a short-term buck and sell their grain for more money and abandon the long-term stability in the marketplace that the niche pork offered them. That's a tragedy. And I listened to it and I warned people. I said, you better hang in because if you don't patronize the people that got you where you are in the niche marketing today, don't expect those people to come back tomorrow. Being loyal is very important. Being loyal is terribly important. Being loyal to the future is what we really have to have. You don't see in our quality of life statement or in what we want out of life to maximize short-term profits? No. The corn goes to $20 a bushel? I'm going to raise hogs. I'm doing real well. I got $1,550 a piece for the fat cattle I sold this fall. I'll pay income taxes on that. I got mother cow herd, raised all the grain. You know what my income tax wants to know about? He wants to know about depreciation and interest, repairs and taxes, insurance. And if I walked in his office and said, here's my opportunity cost, he'd kick me out the door. For good reason. Those are stressful times, I'd say. By 2007, I'll tell you, the farm was both profitable and stable. And I feel it's doing very well in the future. We, uh, we feel that it is on a good track. Biological diversity. What in the world was it? 1974, not even a thought. I was using continuous corn rotations. I was using insecticides. I was exposing myself to things that I didn't even want to talk about. But 1974, that's the way agriculture was. 1997, motivation to change. I can tell you, the Pope came to Iowa, and uh, he said that the land is yours to be preserved for generation upon generation. And I was on a ladder. <laughs> yeah, sorry to cry about this, but I remember being on that ladder at the barn because I didn't go to see the Pope, but he might as well have been there with me. 1987, yes, it is critical, but I don't have a clue about how to apply biological diversity to our farm. 1997, we're beginning to make changes realizing that we can adapt practices to encourage biological diversity. 2007, biological diversity leads to stability. I'm absolutely convinced of that. I have seen things in our farm now that have become more stable. A good example is this. We know now that there are insects, and there are uh, basically in the insect community, but also in the mammal community, that predicate upon weed seeds that have to have a winter habitat. And so if you leave the weed seeds on the surface and don't till it in in the fall, and you give them a habitat over the winter, they go out in the fields great distances and will eat about 90% of the weed seeds. Now, it doesn't mean I don't get any weeds, but it does mean I reduce my weed seed pressure to biological diversity. And that's very important. Future becoming even more diverse. So we test practices like adding shelter belts and different things on the farm against what we want long-term, how we're going to make it happen, that doesn't make the farm stable and ecologically sound long-term. And we think it definitely does. Crops grown. In the early years I farmed, there was very little diversity. I wasn't even growing any soybeans. There was a lot of corn on corn. There was some pasturing going on. Uh, Through the 80s, uh, the rotation was a lot of ridge till. I have nothing wrong with ridge till. I ridge till corn and soybeans for years, grew some oats, always had pasture for the sows, was reducing inputs, was still using uh, uh, herbicides. In the 90s, we grew amaranth, we grew corn, beans, barley, hay, and pasture. But the problem is prior to 95 is we did not have a business plan. 
It took years of thinking about it and talking about holistic management before we sat down and wrote out a plan. So the best advice I've ever had given to me is from Ron Roseman, one of the most seasoned veterans in the organic community. And Ron said, sit down and write down a business plan and integrate a crop rotation with your business plan and then stick with it. And Ron, I'm convinced, is right. So for many, many, many years, we had chaos in crop rotations. By the 90s, we were developing a business plan, which took amaranth out of the rotation, but put it in a rotation that was this. Corn, soybeans, small grains, hay, and pasture. Now, there might be barley or oats there, so it's a little mistake here. So, but that's, the rotation today has been this way. Corn goes to soybeans, soybeans grow to small grains, the small grains go to hay, and the hay goes to pasture. The pasture ground is manured and goes back to corn. Now, that's been the rotation since 95, and that is about to get changed. But the future rotation is going to go to this. Corn, soybeans, corn. Now, sounds like king corn, doesn't it? All right. But then small grains, hay, pasture, and pasture. There are a dozen reasons I want to go to this rotation, but largely because of the fact that it gives us longer time for the soil to accumulate aggregate structure. I will promise you that as we've changed these rotations, soil structure has improved. Soil aggregate structure is one of the best ways of measuring sustainability. Our soil fertility is up, but our aggregate structure has definitely improved, and our crop rotation is the basis behind it. And of the failures I see organically is people who do not have a business plan, who do not plan out a rotation. The rotation should be sod-based, and they should stick with their rotation. And yes, you have to make some changes to make that happen. We had alternative crops and some cropping systems. To start with, there really were none. Went through ridge till. There's nothing wrong with ridge till, but I don't know how to ridge till with quackgrass. There's nothing wrong with amaranth, but I don't know how to do amaranth with livestock in an integrated rotation like we have. The ridge till acres declined, even though there was really nothing wrong with it. But once I took Roundup out of the system, I didn't know how to handle quackgrass. And quack is something I have to deal with. But we deal with it pretty decent today. We have some uh, small, uh, we have about a thousand nut bearing bushes on the, on the farm. We have shelter belts, and the shelter belts have been a very important change in the farm. But any new crops or practices, how do we test if you want to use them? Do they integrate with our personal values or not? Going to make me comfortable or uncomfortable? But by 2007, the farm had organic crops, hogs, and cattle. It did not come in quickly. I'm very glad that we brought the farm in in a field at a time, and it gave me years to learn and make those adaptations. Uh, and the beef cow herd had to come in last. So we did not take the farm organic overnight. I'm very glad that is true because it takes time. It takes time and it takes commitment. For more on the Franson Farm, see LSP's website at www.landstewardshipproject.org and click on the Newsroom, where you can search our Land Stewardship Letter archives for articles about the operation. Send your comments and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. That's bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also call me at 612 612- A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and you'd like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening.